Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as usual, I want to thank all of our listeners. I absolutely love all the support that you've been giving us. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I want to acknowledge all the new listeners we've gotten all over the world. I see we have some new people from Sweden. We have some people from Norway. Uh, We have some new listeners in the UK. Thank you so much. And once again, I want to ask you if you have any unusual crimes from your home countries that you think we may not have heard of in the U.S., reach out to me on Twitter at GeekFlossy, and we will take a look at them. Also, if you want to show some love, you can throw us a few bucks on our Patreon page, which is through Podbean at patreon.podbean.com forward slash psychyourcrime. I'm going to put the link down below. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, you can Venmo us at Psych Your Crime. Anything would help. We also love if you rate us five stars on any platform you listen to us on. That really helps us out. It gets us on those most recommended lists. So this week, we will be looking into the case of Linda Taylor. She is the woman who was dubbed the welfare queen and made the face of welfare fraud by Ronald Reagan during his initial presidential run. Making the, when he made rooting out widespread fraud on the taxpayer dollar main issue of his campaign. Now, Linda Taylor was simply put a lifelong con artist. Her cons were not confined to welfare fraud and they span decades. Now, it doesn't matter if someone's brilliant and worldly or stupid and naive. Everyone is susceptible to con artists. There's one thing in particular that makes anyone, intelligent or not, a good victim. And that isn't a personality trait. It's not a demographic trait. It's a situational thing. Where you are at this point in your life. People who are going through life transitions are more emotionally vulnerable and con artists can spot that from a mile away. These can be negative The victim can be experiencing sadness of a divorce, getting fired, or the death of a loved one. Or they can be positive things. The victim can be experiencing the joy of a new marriage, a job promotion, the birth of a child. There's one thing that all these things have in common and that there are periods of upheaval. Con artists, um, just like predators, love to pounce on opportunities of emotional vulnerability. During these periods, we become a little more uncomfortable because humans don't really like uncertainty and ambiguity. We like things to be meaningful. Everyone really wants things to be black and white and have answers in their life. It's really hard to deal with when everything is in flux or shifting. Con artists can spot that and really take advantage of it because it's what they sell is meaning, clarity, and certainty. They're going to tell you a story that seems to make sense to you and actually makes you say, hey, okay, now I have answers. Now I have something that makes sense in this time in my life. Another thing about con artists is the belief that work is for suckers and that their cons are an easy path to riches or to money. Um, They believe that something is a big score, that they're going to get um, gains with little effort when in fact the opposite is true. The big score is usually something called the long con that can take years of planning and work to get close to and ingratiate themselves into a mark's life. 
in order to con hundreds of thousands of dollars from them. And many times it doesn't even pay off or the mark ends up not being worth as much as they had believed. So many times when they run cons like this, they it it's actually better or more worthwhile to just get a job. It's less work to just work a day-to-day -day job than it would be to run some of these cons, but they don't see it like that. Taylor was born to Lydia Mooney White in Gold Dust, Tennessee, a few months after White moved there from Summit, Alabama. Although no birth certificate was issued, it is believed based on other details provided by Taylor's relatives that the birth was probably occurred in January, 1926. The identity of Taylor's biological father is uncertain. In census records and court testimony, her relatives gave varying information about her parentage, but always identified her as white. Rumors in the family indicated that her father was black, but Lydia White could have been convicted of a felony under Alabama's law against interracial relationships if she admitted this. At birth, she was named Martha Louise White. Not much is known about her childhood. In October 1926, Lydia White married Joseph Jackson Miller, and subsequently, the United States Census records listed Martha Louise Miller as their daughter. Throughout her life, Taylor presented herself as being of various racial and ethnic identities, including Black, Asian, Hispanic, and Jewish. Taylor represented herself as being many different ages, with one government official stating in 1974 that it appears that she can be any age she wishes from early 20s to early 50s. Although she became best known under the name Linda Taylor, news reports indicated she has as many as 80 different names, often with false identification documents to match. Linda's first big con was an inheritance scam. On April 18, 1964, a 29-year-old woman claiming to be Constance Beverly Wakefield came forward to claim $750,000 fortune of Lawrence Wakefield, a Chicago numbers runner. Constance had an Illinois birth certificate that listed Wakefield and a woman named Edith Jarvis as her mother, as well as a family Bible that listed her race as white. This was confusing as Wakefield was black. Constance stated that her guardians did not let her attend regular school or play with other children as her father was always afraid she may be the target of rivals. Claiming that gangsters had sabotaged her car and that she had to protect herself from thugs with a pistol at one point. Her main rival for the estate was Wakefield's common-law wife, Rose Kennedy, who was fighting an uphill battle herself as she was white. So Constance smeared her in the press. She told people she was just his housekeeper and that she had tried to poison her with strychnine. The police and state's attorneys tried to talk to her multiple times, but every time she was set to talk to them, she seemed to have an accident or come to some misfortune. She got in a car accident, delaying the proceedings due to surgery. Then she fainted due to a barbiturate overdose. Many people believed she did in fact know Wakefield, if only peripherally. She finally was ordered by a judge to produce evidence. She produced several receipts and photographs and even correspondence from people who claimed to have knowledge of her parentage. This really didn't add up to much in a court of law though. 
So next, she produced two separate wills, one handwritten, one signed and notarized, while one lauded Constance's virtuous character and the other highlighted all the defaults in Rose's character. Once Constance was finally cross-examined, she had to explain why she had multiple names and identities. This tripped her up. Eventually, Rose Kennedy's lawyer asked her if she knew a man named Herbert Mooney. She insisted multiple times that she did not. Then they surprised her by calling Mooney to the stand and he stated under oath that her name was actually Martha Louise White and that she was his niece who he had last seen sometime in the 40s when she had called him in California for bail money. And with that, her case fell apart. On August 8, 1974, Taylor filed a police report claiming that she had been robbed of $14,000 in cash, jewelry, and furs. Detective Jack Sherwin and Jerry Cush took the report, but something seemed off. Sherwin felt like he remembered her or recognized her from a similar previous report. 8122 South Clyde Street, Linda Taylor. Taylor had gold teeth, designer clothes, and perfect makeup. Her house seemed to be undisturbed as Sherwin stepped in to take a statement. She claimed that a gold stove, a massive green refrigerator, and speakers that light up to the beat of the music had been stolen. But that didn't seem to make any sense. Taylor said that the burglars shoved a massive double door green refrigerator through her kitchen window. Yeah, you heard that. Shoved a double door refrigerator out the kitchen window. Sherwin didn't believe that at all, but somehow felt like he was getting some kind of deja vu. He felt like he had taken this very complaint before. So he left and he looked into it. And after a minute, he called the Michigan State Police and told them he knew the whereabouts of one Connie Jervis because two and a half years earlier, Jack Sherwin went to an apartment in another part of Chicago on East 78th, where a woman told Sherwin $8,000 in jewelry and furniture had been stolen, but refused to give him an itemized list of what exactly had been taken. This led Sherwin to doubt her story and thought it was an insurance scam. This caused him to call her insurance company and warn them of possible fraud. But he didn't stop there. He began to in interview all her neighbors until he found a possible witness. This witness saw two men loading furniture into the back of a truck. The vehicle was registered in a town called Covert, Michigan. Yeah, you heard that right, Covert, Michigan. That led them to a woman named Connie Jarvis a woman who had staged the burglary of her own apartment. Linda Taylor was Connie Jarvis. While in covert, Taylor first pretended to be Dr. Connie Walker while looking for a brand new home. Yeah, 
brand new, as in just built. She drove a Cadillac and, and claimed to be a heart surgeon. She paid her deposit in cash and promised to pay the rest in full over the next four months. Yeah, the rest of the cost of the home in full over four months. Must be nice. At this time, she was passing herself off as a voodoo priestess. Some called her Dr. Chafola, while others Dr. Huang. She had a 19-year-old handyman named Charles Bailey living with her. What was most confusing was the three young children she had with her. One seemed to appear without warning or explanation, and at times they would disappear or seem to be different children altogether. And when you brought it up, she would ignore you or tell you you were insane. I mean, who doesn't notice if they lose a kid or two? This is where Taylor filled out one of her, this is where Taylor perpetrated one of her largest welfare scams. She applied as Connie Green for food stamps and cash benefits, showing up at the office with a newborn infant named Hosa, who was supposed to be the seventh of her children. She was given $81 in food stamps, which if adjusted for inflation would currently be $535.63 and $236 every two weeks, which in just adjusted for current inflation would be $1,561, $1,561, excuse me, every two weeks. The application had a set of twins and a set of triplets whose birthdays were just five months apart, a detail that no one seemed to notice. While in covert, Taylor even had adoption papers drawn up for the children that eventually the people of the town became suspicious were not hers. She finally ran afoul of the law when she parked her car in a neighbor's garage and refused to move it. He called the police. When they finally arrived, she refused to answer her door. So they went through the car's glove compartment where they found papers with the names Steve Walker, Viola Davis, Constance Nelson, Jackie Taylor, and Dr. C. Harbaugh. The Michigan State Police had the car towed and opened an investigation into the car's owner. When they returned the next day, she was gone, leaving behind her 19-year-old handyman, Charles Bailey, who didn't tell them that Taylor had asked them to move the car to that garage or that he had found money in the car. He did tell them that he met her pretending to be a witch doctor by the name of Dr. Chapola. He told them her aliases of Dr. Huang Dr. Constance Jarvis, Dr. C.B. Levin, Connie Green, Connie Harbaugh, and Sandra Lewis. He did tell them that she hid the car so she could report it stolen for insurance. He also told them about how she was able to get her nanny to change her birth date on her social security paperwork so she could collect early. As Connie Green, she was charged with felony welfare fraud. She was facing four years and had a $10,000 bond due to the belief that she was a flight risk. She was bound over for trial and a new judge reduced her bail to less than $1,000. She posted bond 
and promptly disappeared. The nanny stayed in covert to care for the three children that had been abandoned. One of them, a teen boy, didn't even know his actual name. Now, Jack Sherwin was bringing this all back to life. When Taylor was arrested for the state of Michigan, she had six police department inventory forms worth of different identifications, food stamps, documents, and stocks in her home. She refused to verify her identity, so she had several different names listed on her booking form. Over the next week, Sharon found three decades of arrests starting in 1947. Oh, and while all this was going on, just three days after she was arrested, she filled out a request for assistance under the name Sandra Brownlee, who, of course, had seven kids. Most of her answers to the background questions were none or no. No income, no education, children's fathers, none. But this time, she was denied. Detective Sherwin, however, was having problems getting Linda Taylor indicted. No one wanted to deal with her, and no one wanted to admit they had been taken for a ride. So, a frustrated beat cop that had been helping him leaked the story to famed reporter George Bliss. Bliss elaborated a little bit, stating she had four Cadillacs, not just one. Suddenly her 50 aliases became 80, her ambiguous switching between white and black became passing for all races, Filipino and anything she could do. The story ended up getting picked up nationwide and the inconsistencies grew. But it was the Democrat and Chronicle of Rochester, New York that gave her the name the Welfare Queen. Now Taylor was on the run in Arizona as Dr. Velma Weshmere and Dr. Linda Bennett and Dr. Constance Womack took the Tucson, Arizona police less than a week to find her, thanks to a tip, and she was eventually indicted in Chicago on 21 counts of welfare fraud, seven counts of perjury, and one count of bigamy. Then, in November of 1974, Patricia Parks was introduced to Linda Taylor as Linda Malou, an African priestess who promised to help the sick woman who happened to also be in the middle of a divorce with her three children and also promised to help her change her fortunes. Taylor took over her care and dispensing of her medications, even having her drop a will since the priestess convinced her she would not last six months. She set up a trust for her children and named Linda the trustee and the executor of her will. Only one month after she was released on bond in her Chicago welfare case, Taylor had already moved into this woman's house and taken over her life. Once Taylor moved in, Patricia and the children were alienated from the outside world. The children were left neglected. At one point, the children were found hiding in a cupboard eating dog biscuits. In March, Patricia Parks went to the hospital and on April 30th, 1975, Patricia Parks quick claimed her home to Linda C. Wakefield. Parks left the hospital on June 11th, and four days later, she was found unresponsive in her home. She was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. 
Her middle name and birthplace were misspelled on the death certificate, which was filled out by, you guessed it, Linda Wakefield. The children ended up in foster care while they tried to figure out who should have custody, which seems crazy, right? Even if you're in the middle of a divorce, the children should be with their father. But somehow, they thought that Linda Taylor, as the trustee of their trust fund and executor of their mother's will, was a possible option. Throughout all of this, the children ended up missing their mother's funeral, and it took a Cook County judge a month to determine that custody of the children should go to their father. The children ended up moving in with their paternal grandparents while their father, because their father had moved home after the divorce. They were shocked at their appearance. They were malnourished and drastically underweight. They let the children eat whatever they want and it took them some time to get used to a normal life. They hid bones and seeds from fruit under the bed just in case things didn't stay this way. But their father was not around much at first. He had barricaded himself in his ex-wife's home. John Parks blamed Linda Taylor for his wife's death. And at Linda's insistence, his wife had claimed during the divorce that he had harassed her. So he cut off contact with her and the next thing he knew it was too late. So during his wife's wake, he broke into the home and refused to let her back in while he had the locks changed. He then stood guard over the property with a shotgun and two Dobermans. After three days of this, it made the news. Park's attorney claimed that he was looting the house. So, Taylor came back with armed guards. They kicked in the door on the news. I mean, maybe it's just me, but while you're out on bail and awaiting sentencing and trial for 21 counts of welfare fraud, you probably shouldn't be showing up with paid armed guards and kicking in doors on the news. Just saying. John Parks popped his head out for a minute just to let them know he wasn't going anywhere. Finally, the police showed up and let them know, and I quote, armed guards don't belong here. Everyone get out or everyone's going to jail. As soon as jail was brought up, Taylor got in her car and left because Taylor now had bigger problems. Four days later, the state's attorney launched an investigation into Patricia Park's death and the ownership of her home. They found the funeral director had been told she had cervical cancer, but her treating physician denied she had ever been given this diagnosis. Citing this as the reason he refused to sign her death certificate, the coroner cited this as the reason he refused to sign her death certificate. The state's attorney tried to take possession of her body before the funeral, but had to wait until after the service. The coroner ended up finding an excessive amount of medical drugs in her system. He determined that Parks died due to an overdose of phenobarbital. While this didn't prove murder, it did raise a lot of questions. A priest stated that he had just introduced the two the year before, while Taylor had told police that Parks was her sister. During the investigation, they found that she that Taylor was receiving benefits on behalf of her daughter as the disabled child of a veteran. Unfortunately, the state's attorney was not able to get enough evidence to prove murder. 
not that they really looked that hard. They decided not to put the already solid fraud case at jeopardy and chose to rule her death as undetermined. Now, Ronald Reagan, the governor of California, was running on a platform of government reform for president. Many people didn't take him seriously. So his speechwriters had their work cut out for them when reporters started bringing up past speeches that stated, and I quote, if poor people don't like my proposed cuts, they can move elsewhere. During a speech on January 15, 1976, Reagan stated, and I quote, no one knows how many people are actually on welfare, just how many checks they send out. There's a lady in Chicago that used 80 names, 30 addresses, and 12 social security cards to check collect benefits. And that was the day Reagan introduced the welfare queen stereotype to the conservative campaign trail. Meanwhile, Taylor's charges were up to 54 counts of fraud due to the additional benefit checks and accounts under other aliases that were found. And finally, in March of 1977, she went to trial on the perjury and fraud charges. The trial lasted just shy of three weeks and took the jury just under seven hours to bring back guilty verdicts. She was sentenced to imprisonment for two to six years on welfare fraud charges and a year on perjury charges, all to be served consecutively, and her sentence to be served at the White Correctional Center. Now, the welfare queen stereotype lives on to this day, much to the detriment of people on public assistance. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities did a study that showed that 1.4 million people on SNAP food assistance in 2017 were veterans, single veterans, or veterans with families, while the American Council on Aging reported in 2017 that almost 80% of single individual households on SNAP food assistance in 2017 were seniors. And at the Massachusetts Home for Family Visioning Day on August 15, 2019, Jeff McHugh, the Commissioner of Massachusetts Department of Transitional Assistance, relayed a story about how he was asked to bring forward the accounts of the 100 highest single individual account holders of food snaps. He, however, decided to talk to them and find out who they were and why their balances were staying so high. He found out that 87 of 100 were seniors who had forgotten their PIN, lost their card, or receiving their benefits for special occasions like holiday meals. These were not master criminals living the high life. They were someone's grandmother or someone's father just struggling to get by. So the next time you complain or hear someone complaining about people too lazy to work, just taking government handouts, remember, they may be a vet, a senior citizen, a widow, just a person struggling to get by. That'll do it for this week. Join us in two weeks when we look into the first case of sex extortion over the internet to be tried in the United States. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.